It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, 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 well. First time in a very long time, the New York Mets won a series. How about that? They back up the incredible, amazing comeback from Wednesday night by winning a good, solid, hard-fought Thursday afternoon game against Tampa Bay, winning the game 3-2. to two. They faced a little adversity in this game. Tyler McGill gave up a first-inning run because, of course, because that's what he does. That's what the Mets do. They were able to respond in the bottom of the first inning and tie the game up. Pete Alonzo built off of the game-winning home run from Wednesday by hitting another home run on Thursday. And then Tyler McGill was one out away from getting through six innings and handing the bullpen a lead. Unfortunately, he gave up the home run to Josh Lowe with two outs in the sixth inning, which tied the game at two. But then the Mets immediately respond. Brett Beatty with a huge single that set up the Tommy Pham little infield hit. Mets take a three to two lead. And the bullpen, which had really failed them in the Wednesday game, and this was this was not their top relievers getting a chance here against Tampa Bay, but Brooks Raleigh, Brooks Raleigh, Jeff Brigham getting some big outs, and then David Robertson getting the job done. Mets beat the Tampa Bay Rays on a Thursday afternoon, and they did what we all kind of said in one voice they needed to do, and that is back up the drama of Wednesday, the incredible comeback from Wednesday with a victory on Thursday. I think we all kind of thought the same thing. As great as that win was on Wednesday, what does it mean if you lose the series the following day? What does it mean? I mean, does it kind of take the victory that we all thought could turn the season around and flush it down the toilet? Yeah, probably. It probably does. So to win this game with Tyler and Miguel on the mound, even though they were facing a young pitcher in Taj Bradley, it's still an incredible victory. You win a series against the Tampa Bay Rays. You see the bullpen bounce back in a huge way. After failing the previous night, you see another, and this is really the key to the whole thing, another really solid starting pitching performance. They get back-to-back now from Senga on Wednesday to McGill on Thursday. They both go six innings. Senga gives up one run. McGill gives up two runs. And like I mentioned, McGill's an out away from actually getting through it, repeating the Senga line of six innings, one run. He ends up getting the win anyway because the Mets scored that run in the bottom of the sixth inning. And even though the offense wasn't great, it wasn't. It was just enough because they pitched their ass off and they do it against a Tampa Bay team that is so good offensively that sometimes you just wonder, maybe they know what's coming. (laughs) It just, it doesn't make much sense. And the Met pitching shut them down. That was a great win. That was the exclamation point. And I think as we sit here now, whether you're listening Friday morning or Friday afternoon or very late Thursday night, I think for the first time in a while, we could take a deep breath because the Mets have won back-to-back games for the first time in almost a month. And it does feel, I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but it does feel like things have changed. It feels like maybe the trajectory of this season, which was going in the wrong direction, changed. Now, I got that positive out of the way. I got the good feelings out of the way. Let's get to the other negative from Thursday into Friday that is obviously causing all of us angst. And that is the lineup 
of one Buck Showalter. I can't say I was surprised to see something in the lineup on Thursday that would make us kind of upset. And I want to start with at least defending Alvarez not playing. I understand that he's a young guy and there's this attitude of just catch him every single day. When you put the tools of ignorance on and you get beat up behind the plate for three hours plus an extra inning game on Wednesday, I actually totally understand wanting to sit him down on a day game after night game. I'm really not going to complain about that. Uh, It's not about, oh, he's young. He can play every day. Catchers don't play every day. You may see some catchers DH like Tyler Stevenson does in Cincinnati. And if that's your argument, fine. If the argument is, hey, D.H. Alvarez, completely different discussion. But when I saw that Michael Perez was in the lineup, I wasn't angry. Oh, my God, how does Alvarez not play? I get it. He's a catcher. You got to keep these guys fresh and healthy. So that was not my issue. My issue was Mark Vientos. And before anybody tells you, well, it's a righty on the man. You got to be careful. Let's go over a couple of things. Mark Vientos in the minor leagues was torturing right-handed pitching. He was not just picking on the lefties. I know that in spring training, we kind of envisioned, hey, if he makes the team, what's his role going to be? And it was probably going to be as that DH against left-handed pitching. Well, guess what? Things have changed. That, that's not how he should be viewed. He beat up everybody at AAA Syracuse. The home run he hit on Wednesday was not just against a righty, but was against a side-arming righty which are very tough pitchers to face in Ryan Thompson. And then if you take a deep dive on Taj Bradley, believe it or not, right-handed hitters actually give him more trouble than left-handed hitters. So there was no reason to not play Mark Vientos, especially after he hit a home run in his first start at the major league level. Even if you don't love the matchup, isn't it, Buck, just the right thing to do to tell a kid who probably was frustrated he was sent down to begin with and was probably frustrated that he wasn't called up for well over a month. Isn't it the right thing to do to say, hey, kid, you hit a big home run that really sparked our team. We don't win that game on Wednesday without you. I'm going to give you a start. I'm going to find a way to get you into the lineup. Now, Buck's answers before the game were lame as hell. And unfortunately, all I was able to do was see the quotes from it and not the actual video to see if anybody in the media pushes back at the comedian known as Buck Showalter. Because when Buck says with his, hey, I'm so funny sense of humor, well, you know, there's only one third base. Nobody was suggesting Mark Viento should play third base. Nobody. Like, I get it. He played third base the other night because you decided to sit Brett Beatty against the lefty, which... By the way, none of us agree with despite Beatty's slump. <laughs> it's it's not like we were all like, oh, great, that's smart. So we're not viewing Mark Vientos, nor should you view Mark Vientos as a third-base platoon with Brett Beatty. That's not why he should be here. He should be here to get at-bats at DH. Does Buck realize, and I think he does, that the Met production at a designated hitter has been putrid? We thought it couldn't be worse than it was a year ago. We were wrong. They're getting nothing out of DH. So nobody was suggesting that Mark Vientos needed to play Thursday afternoon at third base. So Buck throws out the whole, wow, we only got one third baseman. DH the guy. Daniel Vogelback has done nothing. Like 
we cannot continue to run him out there. He's not producing enough. This is a production business. You got to put the pelts on the wall. Vogel backs it in 239, even his vaunted OPS, which is usually much higher than maybe the way we feel about him, has dipped all the way down to 726. He's not productive. So Vientos needs to DH. He needs to DH against righties. He needs to DH against lefties. He needs to play. Now, if you want to have Vogel back in the lineup for some reason, then Tommy Pham shouldn't be in the lineup. Now, Tommy did have two hits in this game. He did drive in a run. So I know that may not be the best argument after the fact, but I want to be honest that during and before the game, I was all for Tommy Pham not playing. We saw Brett Beatty briefly in the outfield. We discussed this on the drive home pod. I didn't think we'd see a lot of Beatty in the outfield. Well, I guess I'm right because Buck didn't want to stick him out there. And I think Buck's excuse was, well, there's sun out there. And if there's sun out there, it can be very, very tricky. Well, guess what's going to happen on Friday? There's lights out there. And those lights can be very, very tricky. And then on Saturday, we'll hear, well, it's raining out. Trying to catch a fly ball in the raindrops? Very, very tricky. (laughs) It's like they're looking for excuses to not play these guys. And we're not begging for guys to play just because they're young and different. Like, that's not what's going on here. We're begging for these young guys to play because they've earned it. Because Mark Vientos tore up AAA pitching. Because before this, Brett Beatty tore up AAA pitching. Right now, Ronnie Mauricio is tearing up AAA pitching. And we're watching guys who are here and have been here all year fail time in and time out, time in and time out. So it's frustrating. I mean, it it turned out to not be the end all for us because the Mets won the game on Thursday. But not only was it frustrating going into the game, I think for a lot of us, it's frustrating coming out of this game because we don't know what to expect anymore from this manager. We don't know. And I can sit here and tell you what I think he's going to do, and we could play that game like we used to play with Alvarez. Who's going to catch? How many times is he going to catch? And by the way, there's a new wrinkle to that we'll get to with the news of Gary Sanchez coming up. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So that's the fear. The fear is the Mets are about to play a three-game series against the Cleveland Guardians. There will be three right-handed starting pitchers on the mound in those games, including Shane Bieber on Sunday night. Does that mean that Daniel Vogelbach is going to DH every single game? Does that mean Mark Vientos isn't going to play? Because Buck almost made allusion to it's a Beatty Vientos platoon, which makes no sense. So I think we're fearful on how these kids are going to be used. And that is just so frustrating considering that sparked them on Wednesday. And we mentioned this in the drive home. And I heard Sal say this on WFAN too. So we're in lockstep on this. Vientos hits that home run. We're frustrated. We're excited to hit the home run, but we're frustrated that it took so long for him to get here. And meanwhile, the manager may not play him. The manager, even with the guy producing a triple A, even with the guy hitting a monster home run in terms of importance, he may not play him. So that definitely concerns me and it concerns all of us going into this weekend against Cleveland and moving forward. So I'm happy. I'm optimistic. But how and who Buck plays? That's a big concern.
Ev, you know, it's weird because it's like we just came off the biggest win of the season. The weight's off of the fans' shoulders. They they go back-to-back wins, but yet somehow the Mets and Buck Showalter have decided to Let's just deflate that real quick. Let's give the fans a little something to really think about and really piss us off. And that's really what the problem is. Like, I can't – like you said, the lineup is it, what for one day I'll live with it, but there's that question mark every day. I don't want to go through that. Like, we've been calling for these kids for the longest time. We're not calling up Jet Williams. We're not asking for Jet Williams. We're asking for the guys who are producing who deserve to be here. It's really frustrating, and you've said it too – I don't know if it is. Everyone's pointing the blame on, on Buck. I feel like this is Billy Epler too. The fact that they're in cahoots together, that it's like, we'll do whatever it takes not to play these kids. Yeah, I blame Billy for the time it's taken to call guys up. I think it's all on Buck on who plays. I, I'm not a believer that general managers in general are kind of overlording on who's in the starting lineup. I think that managers today get a lot more information and material maybe than they've gotten in the last 10 years. But I think with that information, the manager makes a decision. And I think Buck Showalter, and I used this comparison on the air the other day, it's very similar to Tom Thibodeau in that they are veteran managers who trust veteran players. And I don't think there's anything maniacal here. I don't think there's any conspiracy here. I think simply, as much as I disagree with it, and this is not me defending it, it's me explaining it. I think Buck Showalter's insistence on Tommy Pham and Daniel Vogelback. And I don't want to even say Eduardo Escobar because Eduardo Escobar disappeared. He's only played recently because he's performed. So I'll just stick it with the Pham and Vogelbacks of the world is almost this relying on veteran players and trusting veteran players and thinking that those veteran players give him a better chance to win. Because when Alvarez was first called up and he was pushed a little bit on why Alvarez wasn't playing every day, he basically laid out the case that Tomas Nito gave the Mets a better chance to win. Now, I could disagree with that, and you could disagree with that, and certainly performance has shown that Buck was wrong about that. But honestly, I think that's how Buck thinks. So it's not about there's some conspiracy here or Billy Epler hates the young players. I think it's similar to what Thibs has done at times in coaching the Knicks, which is, There's a reliance on veteran guys. In his mind, when this lineup was put out on Thursday, and again, we'll see what he does over the weekend against Cleveland, he trusts Tommy Pham more than he trusts Mark Vientos. And that may sound crazy to me and you, but I think that's the answer. I don't think there's any weird conspiracy going on. But here's the thing, and I I really wish Buck and and Billy were listening to this podcast to, to just kind of hear this idea out. They don't trust the young kid. Fine, I respect that. But what happened when Francisco Alvarez got called up early on? Last year, those six games, and this year early on, we don't want to play him every day because you know we don't want the, him to be like pressured into a big spot, blah, blah, blah. He got into some really big spots every game. And he'd strike out. He'd look, quote-unquote, lost. And then what happened? He got into, by far, the biggest spot you could be in. Two runners on. It's the top, bottom of the ninth. You're the final out. He became a hero. Right. He went through that situation before. So you say you don't trust. How about you let them play through it? So, I mean, listen, that's no, not I, for you and me. It's for them. I agree. 
I agree. And by the way, I, I want to give a guy credit. I didn't see this, but I got to give him a lot of credit because he emailed us to Rico B at gmail.com Hector with the Thibodeau comparison of Buck. So we're thinking alike. So good job by Hector. Guys, is Buck the Thibodeau of baseball? <laughs> Meaning his proclivity. They'll want to trust his veteran players over the youngsters. When Thibodeau let that go, the Knicks improved. Buck needs to get there faster. And it's spot on. Because not to, to mix in too much basketball here, but the Knicks season turned around when Tom Thibodeau finally made that change, inserting Quentin Grimes into the starting lineup and showing a little bit more trust in his younger players. And what's weird is that Thibodeau and Buck have a lot of comparisons. A lot of them. They're both very successful, but both have won nothing. You know, let's be honest about it. Tom Thibodeau won a lot of regular season games for the Chicago Bulls. Tom Thibodeau had a successful season with the Minnesota Timberwolves, one. Tom Thibodeau's now had a few successful seasons with the Knicks, but ultimately hasn't led to a championship. It hasn't led to an NBA Finals. So it's not a perfect comparison, but yeah, there is a kind of feel of that. So let's get to Sanchez, because now Gary Sanchez has entered the equation. We found out over the last couple of days that when Gary Sanchez signed with the Mets, he had an opt-out clause. Uh, for this Saturday, where if he was not added to the major league roster by the beginning of Saturday, he could inform the team he was going to exercise an opt-out. The Mets would then have 24 hours to add him to the roster or Gary Sanchez would leave. He could be gone. He could opt out and be a free agent. Gary has done what the Mets asked. He went to AAA. He's hit. He's caught. He's been fine. But the Mets were under the gun here. Gary Sanchez could have opted out. I, I, I mean, End of the world, no. Where is he going? He didn't exactly have teams banging down the door for him earlier. So the Mets were not exactly in a position of panic, but they like Gary Sanchez. Billy Epler obviously has a history with him. So the Mets decided to add Gary Sanchez to the roster. Uh, my assumption, the assumption we all have, is that Michael Perez is gone, not Francisco Alvarez, which I feared, by the way. I, I brought this up briefly on the air. I said, you know, when you look at Billy Epler and you look at Buck, would it stun anybody if they said, you know what, we're going to send Francisco down now. We're going to do a little bit more seasoning in the minor leagues. We all would have went nuts. But ask yourself this question. Would it have really stunned anybody if that happened? And the answer is no. Now, luckily, Gary's coming up. He's not taking Alvarez's job. But let's not be naive here. He's going to take some at-bats away. Gary Sanchez is not coming up here to catch once a week. He's up here to share the job with Francisco Alvarez. And for anyone who suggests, and I've seen Met Beat writers write about it, well, he could DH. The problem with the DH is what we have always talked about. If you have two catchers on your roster and one of them is DHing, God forbid someone gets hurt, you've just lost the DH spot. Now, because Alvarez and Sanchez of both guys that you're not really going to pinch hit for. You know, they're not light-hitting catchers. They're bat-first catchers. The only way you really run into that issue is with an injury. If you're DHing Alvarez and you're starting Tomas Nito, it's a little bit different. You kind of force yourself to have Nito play the entire game. He can't be pinch hit for. So I do think it's a little bit different because both guys are offensive players, so you're just less likely to have to pinch hit for them and then lose the designated hitter spot. Are you fearful that Gary is now 
just take at-bats away from Alvarez? Or are you happy because, hey, Gary Sanchez could be a spark and could be, you know, resurrected, if you will, with the Mets? It's funny. The Mets fans call for, you know, bring up the young kids. And they get the call, Gary Sanchez, which is the exact opposite. So, listen, am I fearful? Yes, I kind of am because I don't trust. I I don't have any trust right now with Buck and Billy. So the fact is, yeah, I think that what the beat writers that keep on saying, he's coming up to catch. He's not just coming up to be a DH. With that in mind, they're going to share the workload. They're going to force Gary Sanchez because they want to see what they have in him. Because otherwise, what the hell is the point of him being here too? They're going to they're gonna share the, the workload. And I, I, for me right now, I prefer seeing Alvarez over any any catcher that's on the staff right now currently. The the one thing I'm I'm sort of intrigued about, and I've thought this a lot in his latter time with the New York Yankees, I was never ready to give up on him. I was never ready to say he can never find what he was in 2017 or even 2019. I mean, guy had 34 home runs in 2019. He was an all-star, and that wasn't that long ago. So I view Sanchez maybe a little bit differently than I view um, other veteran guys that take up a roster spot because I still have that slight hope that with a change of scenery, I know he was supposed to get that in Minnesota and it never really happened. He had a terrible year for the twins last year. And, and so far this year, there's really nothing to base it on, you know, the minor leagues with the giants and the minor leagues with the Mets, but there is a small part of me that still thinks there may be something there with him. And at the end of the day, as much as we want young guys to play, if Gary Sanchez went on a torrid hot streak, we're all going to be thrilled, especially you, Pete, because deep down, you're a freaking Yankee hater. And you know that if Gary Sanchez, who tormented his own fans for the last four years, somehow found himself with the New York Mets, that that would give you great joy. You need to be honest about that, Pete. Yes, of course. That, that that is amazing. That would be fantastic, and it would. Uh, I'd buy a Gary Sanchez jersey. That'd be. I, I would do all that stuff just to piss off all the Yankee fans. But I understand he's had thirty-four home runs. What back in twenty nineteen? But didn't Vogelback have thirty home runs in twenty nineteen as well? And he hasn't been close. That's my worry: is that we keep on going back to like a season that happened four years ago, and let's see if we can recreate that again. That's my issue. But by the way, I want to make it clear. I'm going to be specific, very specific about playing time with us. I have no issue with Gary Sanchez playing a game every series. I really don't. I remember saying that when the tie turned with Alvarez and Nito and Alvarez started playing the majority of the time. I think I've even said to you, look, if Alvarez is going to play two out of every three games, I'm fine with it because I understand that catchers get their ass kicked behind the plate Like you want to do your best to keep a guy fresh and it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with the fact that these guys get their ass kicked behind the plate. There's line drives bouncing off masks. Guys are running more than ever. Uh, There are more pitches thrown in games than ever before because of the walks and the strikeouts. So I'm not crazy to say you gotta play seven days a week. What I don't want to see is Sanchez being the guy playing two out of every three games. Like I, I want Alvarez to be the majority of the time catcher, but you take this weekend against Cleveland, you take the series coming up in Chicago, the series in Colorado, there's all three game series. If Alvarez starts two and Sanchez starts one, I'm good. 
Like, are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. Yes, but there is something else that we haven't even touched on. Gary Sanchez, the likelihood of maybe him running into a couple balls here and there, it's a possibility. I, I love that. That'd be fantastic. But he was awful behind the dish. Talk about a bad defensive catcher. That's Gary Sanchez. Talk about a lazy, like, you know, a lot of people thought he was lazy, lackadaisical. It's Gary Sanchez. Francisco Alvarez might not be perfect, but he seems to be in there. He seems to be a little bit more locked in. Again, the frame is good. So far, we really haven't seen too many miscues. Well, so that's going to be a downside to him. Okay, so a couple of things about that. Early in Gary's career, and I would always defend him about this, he threw out base runners at a very high clip. Like, he would throw out 38% of base runners, which is high. I mean, the league average sits in the mid-20s. I, I got to see what the average is this year. It's probably lo- even lower because of the increase in stolen bases. But in general, caught stealing percentage, which we haven't focused that much on over the last few years because stolen bases have died. Now it's gone back up. But Gary behind the plate was always actually pretty good at throwing base runners out. As far as pitch framing is concerned, what I've heard, I, I can't tell you this is true, but I've heard that he's been improved in the minor leagues, first with the Giants, now in his brief time with the Mets. How improved is he? I don't know. I I would think that because Gary Sanchez is at a different part of his career, he is desperate to to get better. This isn't the old days where, you know, Joe Girardi's giving him a tough time or Aaron Boone's giving him a tough time, and he's the guy who catapulted himself in 2016 to stardom. He's a guy fighting for his baseball life. So if there was ever a time for him to work his ass off, it would be now. We'll see. We're going to get to see him catch, and we'll see how good he is. But if you look at Sanchez and kind of the view of he's replacing Michael Perez, he's replacing Tomas Nito, it's a no-brainer. He is a much better, despite Perez's 4-for-4 four four over the weekend, Sanchez is a much better offensive option than Tomas Nito and Michael Perez. As far as Narvaez is concerned, because I know that's on the back of people's minds now, like, well, what's going to happen when he comes back? Let's see when he comes back. Let's see what Alvarez continues to do. And let's even see what Gary Sanchez does. There there could be a world if Gary takes off, like really takes off. There's a world, as we talked about way back when in spring training, of carrying three catchers. Like that is a possibility. But that's for down the road. I just want to see Alvarez continue to start most of the games and Sanchez get a start every series. Now, you want to mix him in at DH. I'd be okay with it, but my my question would be, where does that leave Vientos and Beatty? If they're going to be willing to play Brett Beatty in left field, maybe more willing than I thought, then you can find a way for all those guys to get in the lineup. And here's how. Brett Beatty plays left field. That kind of eliminates Mark Canna or technically Starling Marte. Canna or Marte, depending on how they're playing, could be the odd guy out with Beatty in the outfield Vientos at third base, McNeil at second, and Gary Sanchez DHing. So there are scenarios where everybody gets their at bats, but we need to live in a world now where if you hit, you play. If you hit, you play. And I think most Met fans are on that planet. If Tommy Pham was hitting and Daniel Vogelback was hitting and Eduardo Escobar was hitting, I don't think we'd be screaming and yelling for young guys from AAA. I think we're screaming for them because those guys haven't been hitting. No, right, exactly. And yet you see every day, even Mauricio today again, his numbers continue to improve and impress. And it's like 
listen, they won the game today, so with the Mets, I can't complain. But I'm tired of seeing guys that are inept and are anemic at the plate. And we have too, we had too many of them. I got to tell you, Vientos being here, even the Gary Sanchez edition has cooled me, at least for now, on Mauricio. Let the kid develop. Let him play in the minor leagues. I don't think, at least for me, I'm in the same spot as I was a few days ago because now there's opportunity for Beatty, Vientos, potentially Sanchez, along with Alvarez, to get those at-bats, where it's not the dead weight, as it's been called, needing to get at-bats every single day. Now, we'll see. That can change. Let's see what Mauricio continues to do in AAA, and let's see what happens here at the Major League roster. But there are ways now for Beatty and Vientos, as we just described, to get the at-bats and really get this offense going because they got to get the offense going. What we've seen the last two days from the Mets is really improved starting pitching. And that's encouraging because it came from Tyler McGill giving you a hell of a performance and Kodai Senga. And Kodai Senga is, he's a fascinating guy because we don't know how good he can be. For the negatives that are attached to him, such as his control, such as pitching every five days, It's the same reason we fell in love with him and wanted the Mets to sign him during the offseason because there's an unknown quantity to him. The unknown quantity is maybe he's even better than we think. Maybe he can be, you know, a top-line starting pitcher. I'm not saying he is. He hasn't done enough, but he's tantalizing because we don't know how good he can be. Now, the Mets have Carlos Carrasco coming back on Friday, so hopefully he's not the Carlos Carrasco from earlier this season, and he's the good cookie from 2022 and then you've got Scherzer and Verlander he'll pitch well a couple of things speaking of pitching from the minor leagues that I wanted to point out Dylan Bundy was signed on a minor league deal I guess it was about a month ago and he went to AAA Syracuse he's been awful he has an ERA of 10.08 which is just abysmal Dylan Bundy was ejected for sticky stuff he's got a 10 ERA and the sticky stuff ain't helping the following day, the Mets at AAA had a reliever ejected for sticky stuff. So I don't know what the hell's going on in Syracuse. And obviously, pitching-wise, nothing that excites us. But the Mets may have a sticky stuff epidemic going on at AAA Syracuse. Keep an eye on that. I am starting to keep an eye on this Mike Vassell, who's at AA. He is a eighth-round pick from a couple of years ago and is one of the better pitching prospects that the Mets have. He's got a 270 RA, but here are the numbers that really impress me. 41 strikeouts and four walks. How about that? Uh, the negative is that he's heading double A, and the Mets are not calling someone up from double A. So Vassal's probably more of a guy to keep an eye on for next season and maybe replacing David Peterson on the depth chart. But I look, I look at the minor leagues and I'm looking for pitching that can help because the Mets don't have a lot of it. They have a lot of position players that can help. Even the kids they drafted last year, you know, Chet Williams is now a top 100 prospect, Kevin Pareda. Like they got all these prospects. They're all position players, which I mean, it's exciting. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I wouldn't want a loaded lineup of young homegrown Mets, but there's not a lot of pitching attached to it. I also noticed Tim LaCastro is playing every day at AAA. And here's the deal with Tim LaCastro. He is on the injured list. He's playing on a rehab assignment. That rehab assignment began on May 4th. That's two weeks ago. You can keep a guy on rehab. I think it's 30 days. 
So the Mets are just killing time with Tim LaCastro and AAA, basically in case someone else gets hurt, you know? Then he could end up back on the major league roster. As much as I like the part of Timmy's game that he adds to the Mets, that pinch runner off the bench, it's not happening. Like, the the guy he could make sense to replace is Tommy Pham because I don't know how good of a hitter Tommy Pham really is. So how much do you need Tommy Pham's bat, even though Buck loves it? Buck goes to church to pray to the bat of Tommy Pham. I don't know what his deal is. LeCastro at least gives you something else that you can value, which is speed, which is, hey, let me stick this guy on first base late in the game and steal a base. But for now, the Mets are just buying time in AAA with him down there. So do we feel good? Like At the end of the day, despite these lineup concerns and who should play and who shouldn't play, are we now as Mets fans in a good place? I feel better. I don't know about you. I feel good. Like I said, I feel good. I'm, I'm just concerned. Like I, I, I think you joking about maybe they'll send the Alvarez down on air today. Like it, it ruffled a few feathers because a bunch of people, like I think, hit me up. Actually, was like, do you think that's true? Do you think Evan really knows something? And I think there's a major concern there because you just not saying that that's really going to happen, but the fact is that you you don't know what the what their plan is. And I want, listen, I want to see winning baseball. And so far the, the MO for like the three weeks prior to yesterday was not that. So I, I like what's going on right now. I listen, th- th- you're talking about the best team in baseball, Tampa Bay Rays, and they just won the series against them. That's a good thing. And I told this, I said this on the other day, I felt that before the series started, BT was like in the next 21 games. What do you think? the Mets are going to go. And I said 14 and seven. I didn't know why, but I just felt like they were going to click. Something was going to happen. And yesterday was the start of it. So I feel confident that they'll find a way to really kickstart their, their season. It, it is so funny that they face all these bad to mediocre teams and can't win a series. They play the Tampa Bay Rays. They win two out of three, but we talked about it before the series. You asked me, what do I want? I said, I want two out of three against Tampa. I want two out of three against Cleveland. I want to have a winning homestand. We'll see if they can pull that off. Uh, I don't think they're playing on Saturday, by the way. So keep that in mind. It's not going to be too catastrophic schedule-wise because the Mets have an off day Monday, but it's supposed to rain all day Saturday. So just to keep an eye on this, Carrasco pitches Friday, no harm, no foul. I think they're going to rain the game out Saturday, which sucks. It's the big Francisco Lindor growing grass on his head bobble day. But then they play Sunday. They play Sunday night. So I think it'll be easy to just make up the Saturday game Sunday afternoon, probably have a day-night doubleheader. And that means we would get a Scherzer-Verlander doubleheader. How about that? We're scheduled to get Scherzer on Saturday, Verlander on Sunday. We may get them both on the same day. But then the Mets have an off day Monday. So it's not usually the doubleheader can really F you up. But because they have an off day, it shouldn't be that big of a problem. It actually benefits Kodai Senga because, again, Kodai Senga with that off day is going to be able to have another start that's not on regular rest. All right, let me get to some of your emails. We got a lot of them over the last few days. I've got to decide how I want to go about this because there are a bunch of emails before the comeback. I mean, I got people swearing off the Mets in the Rico Brony emails. So we could do that, or we could do people just complaining about the lineup. Want to go with that? No, 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 no. I, I think that you should do it. Do like one or two from, from each, you know, go, go in, go in chronological order. All right. Start, yeah. 
Let's go back to the opener of this series. Peter sent this email, and this was – I like looking at the times to see you know, when it was sent. This is at 8.08. So this is an hour into Mets Rays game one of the three-game series Verlander City Field debut. This is Peter. Hi, Evan. Frustrated Mets fan. Watching the game with Verlander pitching, and in particular the third inning where he gave up a three-run home run. Is it at all possible that the Rays have figured out a way to tap into the pitch comp frequencies of the opposing teams so they could be the way they're doing so well? There were so many foul balls and long at-bats in the third inning. It's like they knew what was coming. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. On a side note, couldn't agree more. Daniel Vogelback is a glorified bench player, and they're desperately needing a power threat batting fifth. It's time to bring up Mauricio and Vientos. Well, guess what? You were about to get it. Sean Prestia writes, this was also on Tuesday, and this was at 10-13, so it was right after the game ended. Mets had just lost the game. Since the moment the Braves swept that series last year to end the division chances, the Mets have been a shell of themselves with zero confidence. Pair that with the owner publicly saying this team doesn't have enough and the GM not getting more, I think this team is emotionally beaten down. I also feel fans never fully connected with this group of mercenaries getting overblown paychecks. Look at the 2022 attendance. It didn't reflect a 101-win team, and it felt like the 2019 team had more energy and passion behind it. Do you think that's because of homegrown young talent rather than paying older veterans? I find it very odd. It even feels like the SNY booth cares less about this current group than the 2019 group. We never get a double out of here from Gary. (laughs) Double out of here. It's like the double bang from Mike Breen. Bang! Bang! Um, I don't agree with that. While I do think that Scherzer and Verlander don't have a connection to us, and they are clearly mercenaries, I look at the position players, and I, I don't see the mercenaries you see. I see a homegrown Pete Alonzo. I see a homegrown Jeff McNeil. Obviously, I now see a homegrown Brett Beatty. I now see a homegrown Francisco Alvarez. I see a homegrown Brandon Nimmo. Obviously, Lindor is a hired gun, but I think Lindor has is, is moved past that. There's a point when you go from hired gun to becoming a member of the team, and people forget that. Mike Piazza went through that. I mean, Mike Piazza is beloved by Met fans. There's a club named after him at City Field. Was he not a hired gun? But eventually, you go from hired gun to just a part of the fabric of the team. I think for Lindor, after a bad rookie se- uh, rookie season, a bad first year with the Mets, followed up by what was a really good year last year, I think he's past that. I don't think Met fans are, no, are looking to boo Francisco Lindor. And oh, by the way, speaking of Lindor, I love to do this every once in a while. And, and it was reminded because, to his credit, and he's always said this, Joe B., my former partner, my, my always partner, he'll always be my partner. But he was filling in for BT the other day with Tiki. And he reiterated something he absolutely said. He said it to me. Uh, we weren't doing the show together at the time, but we spoke on the phone. He did not like the Lindor trade. Did not like it. From the beginning, said, bro, I love Jimenez. What are we doing here? Rosario's okay. Bottom line is he didn't like the trade. Andres Jimenez, who had a tremendous year last year, caused some Met fans, Joe included, to say, see, as good as Lindor is, wouldn't we have been better off with Andres Jimenez? Anybody want an Andres Jimenez update? Because I would love to supply it for you. 
While last year he was amazing, actually finished sixth in the MVP voting, had an 837 OPS, just a great year. I mean, no, amazing year. Uh, different than Lindor, different, different kind of players, but great. This season, at age 24, Andres Jimenez is hitting 238. He has an OPS of 678. He has three home runs and nine RBIs. He's 24 years old. I'm not burying the guy. I'm not telling you, see, now the trade is great. It's just it shows you that these trades and kind of viewing how it's gone, they go up and down. And Ahmed Rosario's numbers are not much better. So at least for this season, last year's different. I acknowledge that. But for this season, it's not as if Jimenez is an all-star again. He's not. So I just want to point that out in case you forgot. And can I point something out too? Because there is so much criticism of Francisco Lindor constantly. And I know I said, I think I've said this multiple times here. A, he seems like he's really a slow starter every season now. Like that, that just is what he is. Last year, the same thing. He st- started off slow. At the end of the year, his numbers are going to be there. And I think that a lot of people are critical of him because A, he's making a ton of money. B, we traded for him, like you said. See, he hasn't gotten Jeff McNeil's car yet. So all that combined <laughs> is like we hate Francisco Lindor. I don't hate Francisco Lindor. I think what we have to understand is that I don't think he'll ever be a $300 million player. I think we just have to accept that. He's a very good baseball player. He's very good defensively, despite some recent issues. He drives in a lot of runs. I mean, he's on pace right now to drive in despite his average being way down and his OPS being way down and all that and strikeouts being way up. He's on pace to drive in 120 runs. He has had a knack for the big hit. He's been pretty clutch. That three-run hit over the weekend in Washington basically won the Mets a game. So I think if you hold him to the bar of being you know, an elite, elite, $300 million, one of the best players in baseball level, you'll be disappointed. I don't think he's that, but he's a very good baseball player and he's very important to this team. And I don't get the impression, you know, at City Field, the way the crowd reacts to certain guys. I think we're past it with him. I don't think he has that negative sense. I think he's he's a Met. He's a Met. I don't think he comes across anymore as a mercenary. He's been here three years now. He's going to be here a lot longer. So I, I just disagree with the overall take that the fans haven't gotten behind them. I think the attendance last year is a little bit more complicated. I think that you are still starting to see people feel comfortable going to games. It's kind of like this slow, okay, we're back kind of thing. Plus, teams don't do well attendance-wise until the year after. It's usually not as they're having success. All right, let me jump 10 emails up. This is actually a really good email because this guy proved me wrong, and I like that. I don't know what his name is. Did he sign it? Oh, yeah, Tony. Politely disagree. Pete Alonzo's clutch. (laughs) Hey, Evan, long time, first time. Love the show, Rico. I'm writing because I wanted to challenge you on the idea that Alonzo hasn't been clutch this year. Most of his home runs have been pretty important. I was going to call on the show today. I didn't get a chance. Anyway, Pete is at 14 home runs prior to yesterday's walk-off. He hit only one home run with a lead of more than two runs, a ninth-inning solo shot on April 7th against the Marlins. He's hit only two other home runs when the Mets had any lead at all. He had a two-run shot when they had a one nothing lead versus the Marlins and another two-run home run, this time versus the Giants, when they had a 2 nothing lead. 
He hit a three. He's hit three go-ahead home runs when they were tied. April 4th versus the Brewers. April 12th versus the Padres. April 21st versus the Giants. The other eight home runs prior to yesterday's walk-off have been when they were behind. Three of those tied the game at the time. So that means eight of 14 home runs either tied the game, gave them the lead, or extended a lead of no more than two runs. By the way, great job. Because all I said the other day on the drive home was, I'm glad Pete hit that home run. I was ready to do a deep dive into how he hasn't gotten big hits, right? I would have then done the deep dive and said, you know, fellas, I've been dead wrong about Pete. (laughs) So Tony saved me the time. He saved me a lot of time. I think that's what I said when I was doing the drive home. I said I was about to do the deep dive two o'clock in the morning with my kids sleeping. Tony saved me a lot of time. And his point is obviously it's great that Pete Alonzo's home runs this year and talk about pace. He's on pace at over 50. Uh, He's had a weird season, though. He has because he's had this extended slump in May. Uh, Now it comes out he wasn't feeling well. He had a huge double play on Wednesday that we were all going to kill him for before he hit the big home run. So he's had a good year power-wise. I don't think anybody would say he's had a great season, though. Kind of shows you how numbers can sometimes be deceiving. But good job by Tony. His point is, dude, his home runs have been clutch. His home runs have been powerful and meaningful. And even in the finale of this series, the home run he hit gave them a lead. It turned out not to be the game winner because, remember, they tied it. And then the Mets took the lead on the Tommy Pham infield single. So Pete has hit significant home runs. Significant home runs. Uh, Jimmy Kearney writes, gentlemen, finally something to be positive about. A series win against those damn cheaters. Ah, boy, I started something. Mark Vientos finally getting the call up. Pete's runny nose getting him out of his slump. Senga and McGill pitching well and improving each start. I love it all, but if Buck's showing us a preview of a Beatty Vientos platoon, I'm going to be sick. What is he doing sitting both Alvarez and Vientos after the biggest night of their baseball lives? Vogelback and Pham didn't get the ball out of the infield today, and Pham's RBI single didn't travel 90 feet. It should have been the rare game where Alvarez DHs and you find a spot for Vientos, especially with Marte Hurt. And if not Alvarez, fine. Vientos needs to be the DH. He hit his home run off a righty on Wednesday. As we learned with Ruff, Epler doesn't like to admit mistakes. So as long as Vogelbach is on this team, I think Buck's going to use him. And that's not good for anyone except the local restaurants. Very witty. Very, very witty. I do agree with Jimmy. I'm fearful that we're staring at a Vientos Beatty platoon, and that cannot happen. That cannot happen. Ron Shea writes, I'd normally start an email saying how much I enjoy the pod, but Evan doesn't like that, so let's move on. All right, very good, Ron. I appreciate that. Great series win for the Mets. Pete Alonso is really the heart and soul of this Mets team. A few points I'd like to make and hear your thoughts on. Do you think the level of competition brings out better play from the Mets? How can the Mets lose to garbage teams but somehow win a competitive series against the Rays? As a professional high school baseball player, I can say we definitely played better against better competition. 
Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if that's a thing. I think sometimes in baseball you're streaky, and the Mets have gone through a stretch in which they have pitched horribly. They, they've just pitched horribly. I, I really do think, Pete, it's more that than anything. Because even with the lineup, the reason why I say it's the pitching, look at the finale against Tampa. They didn't hit. They didn't hit. They scored three runs. Now, three is better than one. Three is better than two. And three is certainly better than zero. But they won the game because they pitched. And that's why I've always been adamant that that's the biggest concern. So I don't necessarily think Tyler McGill gets more up for the Tampa Bay Rays than he gets up for some crappy team. I think baseball is one of those weird sports where just sometimes your hot streak will come against good teams and your cold streak will come against bad teams. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Yesterday, you talked about it yesterday on the on the drive home, how when Alvarez hit that home run, how he pimped it. And Kevin Cash and company were probably like, what the hell is going on? Like, it's a regular season game. This really doesn't mean that much right now to, to us. Like, what what is this about? They don't understand the emotions behind what's been going on with the Mets. And I think that kind of is the case a lot of times. I do. I think that a lot of teams will see the Mets right now as a team to beat. A lot of these younger teams, they want to, it's like a litmus test to them. Can we really play well against the New York Mets? And I think that sometimes the Mets don't get up for it. I, I really, I've always felt that way. They played down to their opponent. Maybe, maybe. I mean, they, they obviously didn't play great down the stretch in September. And obviously this stretch of games has been very unimpressive. Uh, moving on with Ron's email. He says, uh, I like Buck, but I don't understand what he's doing. He talks about Vientos not having a position like this is 1991. The DH is not only in the American League and for old baseball players that can't play defense. The DH is a position, and it's a position we are currently sucking at. If he platoons Beatty and Vientos, he's officially senile and too old for the game. Vientos needs to be the DH. Everybody knows it. Um, Yeah, it's weird. Buck talked about positions when explaining why Vientos wasn't playing, and you're right. He's the DH. I, I view, and I'm not saying Buck's going to do this. I view Mark Vientos as the guy who should be the DH every day now. Let's see what he can do. Lastly, let Pete Hoffman talk. His opinions are ones that need to be heard by the Rico Bronya fans. He's also not driving home after the game and can think clearly. <laughs> it's true. That's a good point. Thank you for the drive home podcast. I could see Evan has road rage. The Whitestone Expressway sucks. And we, the listeners, uh, through enjoy hearing Evan yelling at traffic. Okay. Now, well, there you go. Yeah, you got to talk more, Pete. Come on. Step up your game, bro. What the hell's wrong with you? Hey, listen. This is your podcast. I'm just uh, pressing the record button. Well, there's a lot of just anti-Daniel Vogelback emails. <laughs> just- can I, oh, can I say something? And, and this is part yeah. of Buck's issue being a little bit of a – passive aggressive or however his approach is with the media and the whole dh stuff like when they went to him like well why not vientos why not dh well vocal back's good too like what are you doing here like i i think that buck and i think you might have said this or somebody else said this in the office today vocal backs on his last legs and maybe buck's just really trying to give him an opportunity to really sh- prove something otherwise maybe he's on his way out yeah, I, Buck made a comment about Guillaume and how difficult the conversation was in telling him he was being sent down. So I think that as a manager, he sees the personal side of things. And that's that's an important part of the job. It's why 
as much as we sit here as baseball fans and say, hey, I would do this switch or I would do that switch or I'd have this lineup, I can't manage a baseball team. I can't manage a baseball team because I can't manage the people. I wouldn't be good at it. I'd be the first to tell you. I don't know how I would converse with a major leaguer who's at the back end of their career and explain you're not playing every day anymore. And I'm, I'm not, I'm being serious about that. Like the whole X's and O's, if you will, part. Yeah, we all have opinions on it. And some of us may be really smart at it, but that's not, that's all to managing. The key to managing that we can't measure is relationships, is handling people. So I don't know if it's that Buck is doing Daniel Vogelback a favor so he can show something on his last leg, but I do think that it's difficult, especially a guy with, let's say, Starling Marte, to explain to a proud veteran, hey, you're not playing well anymore. We're not going to play you. What he did to Eduardo Escobar just a few months ago. I think that right now, though, if I had to guess, my explanation for Buck's decisions is he genuinely thinks this gives the team the best chance to win. And we disagree with it because we as Met fans saw the youth produce in such a huge way that sparked them to victory. Uh, we apologize for not being able to get to all your emails. There's certainly been a lot the last couple of days. We appreciate it. Uh, you can always email the pod to ricob at gmail.com. There will be no drive home podcast for the weekend series against Cleveland. I apologize. I'm just letting it. Well, first of all, I'm not going Friday. I'm, I, I went to back-to-back games, which is a lot for me. And I appreciate my wife being the greatest wife ever that she was okay with that. And it's funny when I don't go to a game, any game, my wife will feel responsible. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't go to every game. I've got two kids at home. I, I, I just can't. But if the Mets win some kind of game I don't go to, she always looks at me and says, do you feel bad that you didn't go? And most of the time I'll say, no, it happens. Look, I'm going to miss some good games. There are good games I'm going to miss. I missed the combined no-hitter last year that was thrown by the Mets. And she asked me, do you feel bad? And I was like, no, I'm great. This is no big deal. As I left City Field on Wednesday night, pumped up from that victory, I said to my dad who I went with, boy, if my wife asked me, would you be upset if you missed this? If I didn't go to the game, I would have actually said yes. <laughs> this one would have killed me. That would have been a tough one to miss. So now that I got that one, I feel like anything I potentially miss wouldn't be as, I don't know, daunting as missing that one. So I'm not going Friday. I am going Saturday and Sunday if there's a game Saturday, which there won't be, but I'm taking my family. And when I take my family, I can't record a drive home. That would be... uh It'd be an interesting podcast, I'll tell you that. So technically, Evan's season is over because you you were there for the one game that really mattered to you. So you don't actually have to go to any more games. Yeah, I could just call it a day. (laughs) I think the one thing that would really, and it's not going to happen, so I'm not fearful of it, but the one thing that would be very difficult to miss, it's not a no-hitter, it's a perfect game. I think if we ever saw one, and perfect games are so tough to have now because, and I mean like one pitcher perfect game. I want to make that clear. One guy gets 27 outs, and it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Justin Verlander or Carlos Carrasco or Tyler McGill. That is so special. That'd be a tough one to miss. But outside of that, I got the big one, that big comeback. And I I certainly hope that's the game we talk about in the championship DVD that comes out. I don't know if they still do those championship DVDs. It's probably straight to YouTube or something. But if they did, let us hope that game two against Tampa 
goes into the archives. All right, pitching matchups real quick this weekend, and then we'll call it a day. Hold on, I wrote it down. Um, We got Carlos Carrasco against Cal Quantrill on Friday. We got Max Scherzer against Bybee on Saturday. And then Justin Verlander against Shane Bieber on Sunday. That's a hell of a matchup. But again, expect there to be a day-night doubleheader on Sunday. The weather looks atrocious on Saturday. And just word to the Mets, just rain the game out. Because we learned last week from the Washington Nationals that you can really F that up. And then after this Cleveland series, three in Chicago, three in Colorado. But we'll have a lot more time to talk about that. Thank you for listening and downloading Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 